Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold, and Conscious Construction starts right now. everybody this is communication without the fight i'm going to be teaching a little bit and then also spend some time answering questions that were sent to me and then you guys will have a chance to either chat me a question that i will answer out loud or you can raise your e hand and i will unmute you so that we can chat out loud and sort through whatever issues you are trying to accomplish today Obviously, the general theme or GPS coordinates of our chat today is going to be communication. And it was originally named not by me, but by Adrian, communication without the fight, which I think is brilliant. However, one of the things we're going to be talking about is how sometimes in our effort to avoid the fight or to avoid the confrontation or the conversation that really needs to be had that we're not wanting to have either because we feel like it's not going to go our way, we're going to get rejected, or we're going to panic when we try to go in on the topic. Often, those are the fights that need to be had. Not all fighting and not all conflict is inherently bad. And based on what's happened to you as a child, you might naturally be inclined to avoid or put on your people-pleasing hat just to avoid getting yourself into situations that might create that eggshell walking environment for your kids, let's say. I'm sure we have a lot of people on this call tonight that have kids, myself included. There have been plenty of times where there's the thing that you really want to say to your partner and you're kind of sitting there and you're doing your like whisper yelling and you're like, let's talk about this when the kids go to bed. I get that. And sometimes certain conversations, if you keep doing the like, let's hold on and let's wait until the kids go to bed, Sometimes it's no longer in the moment or relevant context. So the by the time you're in bed and the kids are all settled, you're like, oh, whatever, I'm kind of over it. This happens a lot. So we're going to learn how to walk this fine line and do the dance of being authentic and responding to problems when they needed to be responded to and creating a proper container based on intention and goals and how we're actually carrying it out so that we can get as close to the results we're looking for as possible without being manipulative or controlling. For many of you, being manipulative is something that probably just comes second nature. It's often a reflex that gets created in early childhood. So we need to also be aware of how we might be naturally inclined to manipulate or puppet master other people, right? Um, I, like I said, I'm going to turn to just a few lecture slides. I will share all the PDFs with you. They're just kind of basic rundowns of what a source belief is for those of you that haven't yet taken our full online course. So while we won't be going through and helping you per se figure out what your source belief pattern is, I'm going to lay them all out there and give you some basic working definitions just so that you can do your best to take an educated guess before you know, you actually dig into this work just so that you can really see each of the concepts that I'm presenting today through that particular lens. It certainly helps. So before I jump into the actual teaching itself, does anyone have any questions that they want to throw my way before we start? And I do have everyone's questions that were emailed and I have them all line item by line item. But like I said, I'm more than happy to answer 
any questions that you have, this is your time tonight. And uh, while I might still be on vacation in a teeny tiny little cabin in the woods, I'm here with y'all. Okay, let's turn to some lecture slides. Give me just one sec. Okay. Okay, so you should be able to see my lecture slides now, communication without the fight. And when we say fight, we're really talking about the friction or the fear around the communication, because not all fighting or not all conflict is inherently bad, like we've been talking about. But what we're trying to remove is the reactivity, the internal friction, the fear, the sadness, the anxiety, right? Those are the things that we're trying to remove from the equation while still being committed to navigating or walking the path that needs to be walked to achieve what needs to be achieved with the communication. So this is one of the things that I think this is just a healthy checklist in general to evaluate each time you're going into a communication. So even if this is just kind of like a snapshot list that you're running through in your head when there's something that comes up for you and you're like, God, I really need to have this conversation with my partner, or I really need to have this conversation with my kid or with my mom or with my boss or with my coworker, whatever the person is, you flip that person in there and you run yourself through this checklist. So I'm going to put boundaries and expectations in one line, and we're going to go a little bit deeper on expectations in a few slides. So boundaries, when you think about your interaction with this particular person, what are your current boundaries and where potentially do you need to put up more boundaries or communicate clear what your boundaries need to be with this person? For example, um, if you're fighting with a, if you're about to go into a potential fight with a partner, is one of your boundaries that as soon as you start yelling or swearing, you're leaving the conversation? Is one of your boundaries that as soon as they start telling you that you're crazy, that you're leaving the conversation? So we just need to get clear on what things we are willing to rock and roll with and which things are going to be a hard container for us to say, you know what, this is a really important topic for me, but when you treat me this way, it makes it hard for me to engage with you. So if you can calm down, I will happily come back to the communication. And by the way, for those of you that have already done break, just saying that to somebody that is used to playing this ping pong game of anger, respond, anger, respond, that's going to be really triggering. When you can calmly not react to them swearing at you or getting angry and say, you know what, this is a hard boundary for me. I want to have this conversation, but not when you're swearing at me. So if you can stop, I will happily come back. It will be in the context of what we talk about in break method. It will be the ultimate red ice cream cone, which means it's going to really push their buttons even more because they don't necessarily realize that their brain is trying to get you to keep reacting and playing this game with it. So when you go into each communication, be clear on what your boundaries are with this person, you know, kind of pre-communication what needs to potentially have more of a boundary placed on it and what the general expectation is for the communication itself. What is the expectation you have for the person? For example, when you're dealing with your mom, you probably know this person really well. Expectations can quickly be dictated and blurred into that next assumptions category where it's like, if you want to set this, like, really, you want this expectation for mom, but you're like, oh, but she's not capable of meeting me in this place. So then you kind of 
lower the bar on your boundary or lower the bar on your expectation because you're assuming she's incapable of meeting you in this place. This is where these things get convoluted, right? And it's why in number, the second category assumptions, we have to be really aware of how our assumptions about the future actually create or assumptions about what this person is either going to do in the future or our assumptions about what this person is capable of actually create that very scenario. So when we think about our assumptions, what we're talking about here is your perception, which we all know is very subjective, right? You're not God. You're not able to be like, well, objectively speaking, after you go through the school of sustainable self-mastery, probably more than the average bear, you're going to be able to be like, pause button. Objectively, (laughs) I think I'm seeing this through a really faulty lens. The average person can't do that. What they see and what they experience is truth until they realize that it's not at all truth and that they learn to step back and see it for what it is. So until you've gone through that process, it's important to remember that the way you're perceiving the event is subjective, right? It's entirely dependent on the glasses through which you are viewing the world and patterning this event. So when we think about what lens of glass is now perceiving this event, and we're thinking about what that's now shifting or changing about how we're assuming about what needs to be communicated or what that person might be capable or incapable of or how it's going to turn out, right? So many times in our head, we're like, oh, I already know how this is going to go. And you literally do the very things with your voice tone and your body language and how you select timing and how you deliver the content that make that very thing happen. But you don't necessarily need to have that very thing happen if you pay attention to how your assumptions are actually setting up and creating the very scenario that you are actually afraid of, right? Or are frustrated by. Um, Jen, I did get, oh, did I get your question? So no, I didn't, I don't think I got your question because the question that I have from a Jennifer doesn't have anything to do with this, but I will totally address this one toward the end. So we're going to get to all the questions at the end of the teaching, and then I will jump in and, and hit this question. No problem. So I have it now on my radar. And if anyone has questions that they want to send to me ahead of time, so they just kind of get in the queue, go for it anytime. I'll keep my eye on the queue, but for the most part, I'm going to teach and then we'll shift to questions. So assumptions are going to be a big way that we completely railroad ourselves, but also rob the other person of the opportunity to do something different. If we keep treating them as if they're incapable of ever responding the way that we truly want them to respond or having the type of conversation that we know would really propel our relationship in a different place, but we just decide at that moment, well, whatever, they're not going to respond this way. So then you give them the very attitude that makes them snap at you. We're just going to perpetuate the cycle over and over again. So we've got to be very mindful of what assumptions we're jumping to in that particular communication, both about the person's capabilities, but also how the communication is going to go. So in a way we have to, I always say, especially in break, which can be hard for people. And sometimes it is very triggering. I treat people and teach people where I want them to arrive rather than where they are. And for some people, it's going to feel frustrating. For some people, it's going to feel like I'm setting some sort of expectation or bar for them that they could never possibly meet. But what I'm trying to do is teach them that 
what is currently blocking their expansion is that they're not able to see the pathway for their lives that I see for their lives. So I'm going to keep holding that vision, keep teaching and treating you as if you're capable of meeting me in that place. And eventually you meet me in that place. The same is going to go for a lot of these communications. And that doesn't mean you're going to try it one time and it's going to go great, right? We talk about this a lot in break consistency and commitment to following through on changing or disrupting the communication pattern is going to be so critical. You can't just do it one time and then be like, see, it didn't work. It's probably not going to work the first time. In fact, when you do change the way you communicate, that person's going to either try to push your button harder to see if they can get you to react the old way, or they're going to start pressing people's buttons around you. If you have kids, all of a sudden they're going to start snapping at your kids. If you have other friends, your friends are going to be like, why is X you know, so annoying this week? Or why are they so agitated? If they can't get that serving of anger or frustration from you, they're going to try to get it from other people. Or every once in a while, they leave the conversation and they're like, wow, okay, that was great. Because sometimes the way you're disrupting the conversation is actually where they want the conversation to go. But by way of you continuing to assume, you never give them that opportunity. I will say that that is less common, but still a possibility. And the more you commit to the consistency piece, the more likely that's going to be to happen. So let's also now look at intention. This is a big one. What is the driving force behind you wanting to have the communication? For example, for some people, even though they don't want to admit it, potentially the reason that they want to communicate about something is because they want the other person to agree with them or they need the other person to validate how they feel about something. Those are not good examples of intention that are going to be productive. So we want to make sure our intention is productive. If our intention is to control somebody, if our intention is to get them to validate us, if our intention is to, you know, forcibly jam our opinion down someone's mouth so that they can then agree with us and then we don't feel like we're the crazy outlier, none of those intentions are going to be incredibly productive. And no matter how you disrupt the cycle, if your intention is kind of shysty from the beginning and not really a worthy cause, we're going to have problems with the communication no matter what you do. So for example, when you're dealing, cause I know we also, like I said, have a lot of kids here. So sometimes intention with children that gets, that gets tricky. It's like, well, because I need them to clean up their room or, you know, because I need them to understand that I'm not a bad parent, right? Think of the last three times that you kind of went into a communication with your kid and you're like, Oh God, I don't want to have to do this. You need to have some sort of deeper conversation. Let's say you're going through a divorce and you're like, how do I have this conversation with my 10 year old or my 13 year old is already acting hormonal and they're being completely insane. How do I have this conversation? This is where intention becomes very important is your intention to get them to change their behavior immediately upon hearing what you have to say. Cause that's not realistic is your intention to get them to listen to you and marinate on it for a bit. Okay. That's probably a much more worthy intention. And it's probably going to lead to a lot more success is your intention to express how you feel about something and then open up the space for the other person to then disagree with you. And is that going to be okay with you? Cause that's probably a worthy intention. If your intention 
And you have to be really honest with yourself about this because this is where people tend to really get themselves tripped up. You know, they can only admit this after the fact. Well, it's like, really? I mean, I just, I was never going to be happy with how that went unless they agreed with me. It's like, people don't agree with me all the time. In fact, I had like three people today tell me to go fuck myself via email, just from a mass email that went out. I don't even know these people. And they're like, fuck you and your views. Like, I don't know you. Thank you. Um, Sometimes we just, we can't take that stuff personally, which I'm going to go into a whole social media thing later because there were some questions about that. Social media is a cluster for communication. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there were some, there were some like very rageful people that responded with like hate mail to me today. It was awesome. Really started my day off great. Um, so when we think about that intention is you have to be honest with yourself. And if the truth is you're doing it to hurt somebody or you're doing it out of spite or you're doing it out of resentment or you're doing it for validation or you're doing it because you're angry in that moment and you want to make somebody else angry too. Stop. Take a beat. That's not the time to go into important communication. That might be one of the very reasons that you're struggling with communication. So being honest and reflecting like, what, what am I really trying to achieve here? Like what's driving me Is it that something two weeks from now is stressing me out and I can't stop thinking about it? So now I want to bring my partner in it so we can both stress out about it. Because sometimes that's the truth. And is that a worthy cause? Does your partner, if they're not stressed out about it and it's actually not a priority right now, do you need to bring them in on it just to make yourself feel better? Is that a valid intention? So this is a critical one for you to go through because Intention is really everything. And if your intention is pure with what you are trying to communicate about, you're going to have a lot easier time finding little pivots or ways to disrupt the pattern to get the end result that you're looking for. Let's move on to style, body language, timing, voice tone, use of language. I know a lot of you that are in this Q&A are currently in our personality and how it all goes wrong course. If you've already taken break, which I can see a lot of people here already graduates, you already know this in and out because it's part of what you've learned. Evaluating how your body language presents when you're in certain types of conflict or conversation, how you select timing, for example. And this was a, a great example that somebody gave on one of the lectures from, I think, a year ago in the summer. Yeah, last summer. She would get really fearful and anxious about anything having to do with paying bills, paying rent, anything regarding kind of financial security in the home front. And she was recently married and they split everything. So whenever something would come up regarding finances or home stability, because she was afraid of getting her partner to be reactive, her brain would tell her to do all these things like, okay, Don't do it then when he gets home from work. Wait till he gets home from work, takes a shower, give him dinner, make sure he's all happy, then hit him with the question, right? But what we run into when you try to manipulate the timing that way, it feels like you are sneaking up on the person, like you're ambushing them, and like it's no longer an authentic communication. It feels like a sneak attack. So one of the things that can be a great way to solve a problem specifically like this, and if you are in a relationship, this can be a a tool that you just kind of implement at home. 
have a set day of the month or two set days of the month where you're like, these days we save these sorts of conversations for us to just sit down, go through bills, go through anything that needs to be said regarding these topics. And then you're not worried. Everyone's clear on what the expectation is that day. And then you don't have to worry about sneaking, sneaking around and trying to like give them a massage and be like, honey, so I kind of ran up the credit card bill, right? All of these are ambushes and sneak attacks. So when I say timing, I'm saying, how is your brain directing you to select what time is going to be the good time versus the bad time? Because quite often, as soon as you're trying to calculate or premeditate the right time to have the communication, it's already the wrong time to have the communication. And often our fear of rejection or our fear of that person leaving us is the very thing that's making us be like, not now, but at this time, or I'm going to save it for this next week because blah, blah, blah. And a great example of this with me is Gordon really likes things to be like on a schedule. He likes to stick to the schedule. He likes consistency. I kind of not so much. I could, you know, go from house to house and have plans change a million times and be fine. We had a little bit of a Airbnb situation occur where one Airbnb was like not okay. So instead of saying there for 12 days, I picked three different places that filled the same period of time. And they were just shorter stays. You know what I mean? To me, it was like, we saved money, win-win, nicer neighborhood. So I just did it. But then I found myself really afraid to tell him that we were going to be moving a few times. And this was not ideal. One of the times I waited until the night before we were going on a fishing trip at six o'clock. I'm going to be like, babe, sorry, um, we have to move this Airbnb tomorrow. So I'll help you all night pack. That didn't go well. That wasn't fair of me. It wasn't fair to him. But the way my brain rationalized it is, well, I don't want to tell him right now because then it'll ruin the day. I'm like, I don't want to tell him then because then it might ruin the day. Honesty and in the moment, authenticity is always going to be the best policy. As soon as you catch your brain trying to tell you to like slow play it or pick a different time, it's already the wrong time. Voice tone's a big one. Sometimes, despite how much we try to be in control of our voice tone, sometimes if that particular person is in a cycle with you and they have been for a long time, even if you actively change your voice tone, they might still hear your old voice tone. I think we've all had that situation before where someone says something to you and you swear you heard something else. You're like, what did you say to me? And they're like, did you get the eggs? And you're like, whoa, I thought you were trying to fight right there. So sometimes we hear what we want to hear and we hear things the way we want to hear it rather than the way it's actually being said, which is why we go back to, if you're going to disrupt the communication pattern, you've got to be consistent and committed because the first time you might do it different and they might still hear the old. Then the second time you might do it different and then they might hear like half old, half new. And then the third time they might be like, well, you're really communicating differently now. But being honest with yourself about the voice tone is going to be important. One of the things that I think goes in tandem with this is use of language. I'll use this example. In Hawaii, where I used to live for six years, with certain groups of people, and I was raised on the East Coast, the way I talk naturally seemed offensive to people. It naturally made them feel like I was trying to exclude them. They didn't understand words that I was using. It made them feel like I was trying to be better than them or I was pretentious, right? 
sometimes, and that doesn't mean that with the majority of people that I'm around, they would perceive the way I speak as pretentious, but in Hawaii, it certainly did with certain groups of people. So we've got to be able to adjust and adapt our use of language to make it pure language, right? If you perceive that, if you just kind of get yourself onto a peer level with every group that you're around, even if it's with a child, you've got to adjust your language for a child so they can meet you in a place that makes sense. You've got to adjust your language when you're in Hawaii dealing with a bunch of locals that don't understand half the words that come out of your mouth. And the same is true for somebody that let's say they already, um, they already have a source belief that they're always going to be rejected and they struggle with self-worth. They struggle with feeling like they're smart enough or good enough. If you tend to talk about yourself more and, and, or intend uh, intentionally use a large vocabulary, you're going to alienate that person and probably activate all their source beliefs. And in general, talking about yourself all the time, not ideal, not ideal. Um, I would say it's real common and being able to listen to yourself talk and be like, I'm talking about me too much back to you. It's a skill set that many of us could seriously benefit from. I know that I was like that a long time ago, especially when I was like late teen, early 20. Sometimes this can come from having parents that are like big, loud personalities and storytellers and it almost feeling like you never had a chance to participate. You were always listening and like, engaging in the stories, but you could never have a chance to talk. Anytime I would interject or say anything, my dad would usually like shut me down to start talking over me. So I get it. Like sometimes where this comes from is you just being like, oh, I want to share all these things. Or sometimes your brain is telling you that you're trying to relate to the other person. But if you're not conscientious about how it's happening, it can come off a little funky. Um, and by the way, in break, I often have to give examples from my life to make analogies or put things into perspective, but you better believe that in my everyday life, I'm certainly much more quiet. Um, Cheryl says, when I was married, I totally did the plan a convo with my partner. I can now see the ambush. <laughs> Thanks, fear of rejection. You said if you're planning the talk, it's already too late. So is it best to just approach the topic ASAP? Um, it's best to approach the topic ASAP, so there's a measurement here. ASAP when it's still authentic and relevant, but not irrationally without you running through these other things first. Like, what's my intention here? What am I trying to achieve with this communication uh, container? What assumptions do I already need to kind of pull out of this communication? And how am I going to go into it? So Authentic timing and yes, ASAP, but not so ASAP that you're not checking in with these particular items. And obviously, you're not going to walk around with a checklist, you know, some of you might, which is fine. But in general, these things are going to take a little bit of time to just make top of mind. So even if you just have them in your phone notes, these things can be important to just kind of check in with myself. Okay, I'm already feeling frustrated. Am I jumping to any conclusions here? What is my intention, right? Just kind of run yourself through the list. And I'm certainly not expecting you to walk around with the list. <laughs> Adrian says, not so ASAP that it's rocky. Ooh, yeah, girl, you know, you've got away with words. Um, so authentic and when it's top of mind, but not so top of mind that you're rushing to do it in an irrational 
way in which you haven't gone through these other things. So the use of language can be a big one. Be mindful of your words, use pure language. And it doesn't mean that you need to come off as condescending, right? Because sometimes when we try to adjust our language, all of a sudden we become condescending. So try not to do that. I have a million instances of watching my mom do this when she would talk to certain people. And I'm like, no, no, please don't do that. (laughs) No, no. When my mom would try to talk to certain types of people, for example, she came with me to pick out um, my clothes for when I went to go uh, teach a lecture in Washington, D.C. And as she was, you know, talking to the the ladies that were trying to grab my clothes and stuff, I'm pretty low-key and I also hate dressing up. And I have no problem with kind of getting ignored at a nice store because I usually dress like a tomboy and I look like I'm like 15 years old. So I just like kind of kept getting ignored, ignored, ignored. And my mom goes up to me and she's like, hi, you might not know who my daughter is. And I was like, no, 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 no. Please don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, it's so cringy. So don't try to adjust your language so much that then you're adjusting your voice tone and all hell's going to break loose. Let's look at goals because understanding what end point you would like to navigate the conversation to is very important. So think of this as what are you trying to achieve with this particular communication? And I think it's important to think about the specific communication rather than like, if you're dealing with a relationship partner, like what is the big long-term goal you're trying to achieve with this? No. What is it that you are trying to achieve with this communication? Is it, I'm trying to get my partner to understand how I feel Is it I'm trying to get my partner to be open to shifting their position, to align with my position? Um, Am I trying to express my frustrations? Am I trying to communicate about plans and I just want them to acknowledge that they've heard me? So if you just think about what is the end goal, what is that final point that you want to have both people arrive and what sort of, if you think of the data that's going to be exchanged in the communication, if the data was a football, how are you going to pass that football? And how are you going to judge whether that football was like received and it's a touchdown or whether you fumbled and all hell broke loose? So I think that analogy is going to be important there. If the communication was a football, how are we going to judge whether it's a touchdown or whether it was a fumble? Level of commitment to the long game. This is going to be important for those of you that are entrenched in trying to disrupt long-term communication cycles. So if you've been married to somebody for 10 years, you've got a pretty deeply developed cycle and break method would be called the symbiotic dysfunction. If you've been friends with somebody for a year, you definitely have a deep communication cycle. If you've been a coworker with somebody for even six months, but you work closely together, you've got a deep communication cycle. So when the people that we don't have a deep communication cycle with are people that we meet for the first time, right? A store clerk, our usher at church, our, you know, kids camp counselor. Those are not people that we're going to have history with. However, in those interactions, our source belief pattern, which we're going to get to in a second, that's what's really going to be the driving force. But once we're dealing with somebody that has an established communication pattern with us, what's going to be the driving force is no longer just our source belief, but how we've already established all of these things that we're looking at, the container, the assumptions, our body language, our goals, etc. 
So when we are trying to disrupt a cycle that is in existence rather than just a person that you're meeting randomly on the street for five minutes and having a conversation with, we have to be honest with ourselves about what our level of commitment is to shifting the overall cycle. If the answer is we're not very committed to it, then whatever, like just be honest with yourself about it. Because if you're not very committed to it, it's probably not ever going to change. If you're really committed to it, that means that you're probably going to have some rough conversations and rocky roads on the way to getting that relationship to a better place or getting those boundaries to be upheld or letting the other person understand what your new expectations are. Once we start to disrupt the cycle, that doesn't mean that the tactics that we're going to use are going to necessarily make everything like peaceful and wonderful. In many cases, there are going to be moments that it brings more things out to the forefront that you haven't been voicing or that you've been voicing in kind of a people-pleasing or avoidant kind of way so that people are then able to, to face the truth, reconcile the truth, and then move on to a much better place. I was able to have a really deep conversation with my daughter the other day who she just gets really worried every time Gordon and I have any sort of communication that's not super loving, right? And it's because she's very, very attached to him and she's got a history of abandonment issues. So I had to remind her that, you know, not every communication that we have that is, you know, just not happy and positive, that doesn't mean that we're fighting. That doesn't mean that he's going to leave. And I tried to give her the example of every single time we've ever had a fight, has our relationship gotten better and have we all grown closer Or have we gotten worse and grown further apart? And she acknowledged that every single time we've had one of these situations where we have to reconcile something that's not easy, we've all grown closer together, not the other way. So many of the things that we're talking about here, while they might cause short-term friction, have a long-term positive end result. So you got to be honest with yourself about how committed you are to that big picture. Okay, so this is going to be a review for some of you and for some of you that are new to the work that we do. This is going to be brand spanking new. So it's important for us to remember that when we're talking about how our brain was patterned, we're really looking at input equals output. And when we're talking about input, we're talking about our parents' actions and choices. So our parents, how we were parented, their actions, their choices, their level of emotional intelligence how they display affection either toward you or toward a partner, their level of organization. So was the house clean? Was the house cluttered? Was the house in disarray? Were they on time for things? Were they constantly a mess and missing things and late, et cetera? And the overall feeling of safety that they attempted to create for you or missed the the mark on and or how you experienced the creation of safety. So the output, this is going to be the actual brain pattern that you have. The output is going to be the child's definitions, their beliefs, their assumptions, and their rules that they create to teach the child how to engage with inputs, formulate actions, choices, EQ. So basically what's going to happen is that all of their inputs that we just described, they're going to help formulate your emotional quotient. They're going to formulate your choices. They're going to formulate your actions. They're going to formulate your perception of reality. So there's a direct correlation here from one to the other. So to put it in perspective and things that would be relevant to in your everyday life, what we're talking about here in terms of 
these brain patterns, it's going to affect how you define love, affection, attraction, or desire. It's going to affect how you perceive communication and define what that communication means about you. Very relevant to what we're talking about today. It's going to influence how you create a to-do list or set priorities. It's going to influence how you make major life decisions about moving, purchases, parenting, marriage, career, how you navigate on roads and behave on on trips and when things don't go your way, how you react to things um, with your body language, voice, tone, and timing. And it's certainly going to influence whether you tend to dwell on the past or project assumptively into the future or both. And quite often, it's both. So in break, one of the things that we help people arrive at, at first through hypothesis and then through a process by which we arrive at a conclusion, is what your origin source belief is and then what your adaptive source belief is. Your origin source belief is typically formed between ages two and five. Sometimes it's earlier. And it's created by the repetitive, adversely perceived experiences that you have. And as I'm sure many can attest that have taken break, Often, it's not the really loud, obvious things that create the pattern. It's the repetitive, small things that your brain perceives as either rejection or lack of safety or being ignored or left behind. Those are the things that really create this brain pattern. So for those of you that might be thinking like, well, nothing bad ever really happened to me. I had a great childhood. These things are often, like I said, not those loud crescendos. I've seen it be that... Um, a sibling was born and they felt the sibling got much more attention to them and they just got left in the dust. Um, I've seen this be an emotionally unavailable mom and dad or mom or dad, where it doesn't matter what they tried to do or how perfect they tried to be. They never really got the love and affection that they were looking for, even if everything else was great. So they don't need to be loud, obvious traumas. And in many cases, even if you have loud, obvious traumas, those are not usually the cause of these brain patterns. We then dig into your adaptive source belief, which is formed between ages 5 and 10. And this is created by the adaptive responses that you use to protect yourself from whatever is causing that adversely perceived experience. So the second one is like a reflex that's developed to avoid the pain or suffering stimulus. So the way we define a source belief in this course, these are the illogical and subjective beliefs we form about ourselves in an effort to avoid pain and suffering. These rules are formed during early childhood and they dictate your behavior 24-7. And that's going to be subconsciously and consciously because your subconscious is going to cue your conscious brain to think that it's giving you good information to act on, right? So imagine like the CIA or the FBI where like 70% of the tips it's getting are actually bullshit, but it can't tell that the tips that it's getting are bullshit. So they're just like constantly going out into the field, acting on all these things. That's basically what's happening with your brain. Your subconscious is supplying faulty information because it's acting as if you were still a childhood or a child in this childhood container. So once you start to take the steps to see how this belief is actually altering your perspective and shifting your perception of reality, and it's actually interfering with how you're defining the environment, how you're interacting with people, how you're selecting body language, how you are inferring meaning, you are virtually incapable of breaking out of it. You have to be able to see it and understand how it's, it's kind of trickily woven its way into your life for you to learn how to break away from it. 
So in this case, the belief is the hypothesis that your brain is seeking out opportunities to prove. So essentially, a science experiment got set into motion in early childhood. And all of the players, whether it was mom or dad, and if I, if I do this, it always ends up this way. You take that science experiment and you take it all the way forward with you to your adulthood. And your brain is constantly running this experiment to be like, see, I do always get rejected. See, no one's trustworthy. Everyone leaves me. But what's happening is we're creating a faulty experiment by placing people into roles and letting our assumptions or our perception place them into roles that they might not actually naturally be in. And we're, we're poking and prodding our environment to get it to act like it did in childhood, even if that's not the natural inclination of each of those people. So the most common source beliefs are, I have to be in control to be safe. I will always be rejected. I will always be abandoned. I have to hold it all together for everyone. And life is chaos. So life is chaos is the least common to have life as chaos, you always have to have one of the following. Suicidal ideation or actual suicide attempts in your past, severe drug or drug addiction or alcoholism, or severely risky behaviors and or like cutting or really putting yourself in harm's way with some sort of consistency. Um, for example, if every boyfriend you've ever had has abused you and wielded their power over you, you might be dealing with this, even if you don't necessarily have the drug addiction or the suicidal ideation. Um, but it's not simply like, a, oh, life is meaningless. It's deeper than that. And it always has those comorbidity factors that I just described. So the most common pairings, remember, just to kind of backtrack so that you can see this. So we're always going to have an origin and an adaptive, right? You're going to have one and then that creates the second. So the most common origin adaptive pairs, red is going to be the origin, black is going to be the adaptive. Number one, I will always be abandoned. And then that segues into you having to hold it all together. I'll give you an example. Let's say your parents fought all the time when you were young and maybe they were like always threatening leaving each other and you just always felt like adults were untrustworthy and you couldn't depend on them for anything. Holding it all together might be the reflex that you kick in to be like, okay, if I can just like do this for my sister or say this to my mom or be this way for my dad, then I can kind of manage the chaos and everything's going to be okay. You learn how to become the peacekeeper or the mediator. That's usually going to be this pattern. But there's a deep-seated lack of trust for adult caregivers and or parents. And then there's going to be you stepping in and be like, okay, I'm going to hold this all together. We're all going to be Okay. And you essentially become the glue that either holds the family together or the glue that holds any situation together because you're trying to prevent the chaos all the time. Number two, I will always be rejected. And then adaptive, I have to be in control to receive love. This is going to happen when you are constantly feeling like you're getting feedback from a parent or primary caregiver that makes you feel like, you're stupid or you're not getting it or you're doing something wrong, even if you don't understand what you're doing wrong. Then when you go to the adaptive, you've got to be in control to receive love. You're very specific with how you often have people pleasing tendencies and you're very specific with what things you do and at what times to make sure that you can have the best possible outcome. Like, okay, I'm going to be really, really good at school so that 
like, you know, daddy will love me because I get good grades at school, or I'm going to do, I'm going to, you know, do this in this way, or I'm going to avoid those people because they're not going to like me, even if you don't really know that they're not going to like you. So there's a lot of, of planning there with making sure that you're getting received well and getting validated. Three, I'll always be abandoned. Two, I have to be in control to be safe. This one's going to be different than number one, because instead of actually being the mediator and actually doing the holding it all together and tagging yourself in to do all this work, you're more going to be micromanaging and constantly checking up on people. Like, did you do that? Did you do that? Did you do that this way? But don't you want to do it this way rather than just doing it? The hold it all together person will just go do it. They'll be like, I don't trust you. I'm not going to waste my time and tell you how to do it. I'm just going to do it. If you have the, I have to be in control to be safe, you're going to be telling people how to do everything. And you're going to be like triple checking. Like, are you sure did that? Did you check that three times? And if they don't do it exactly the way you want to do it, you're going to be driven to extreme anxiety. Number four, always be rejected. And then I have to be in control to be safe and loved. If you have a fear, like let's say they use a lot of physical discipline or there's physical discipline mixed with religious trauma. If it's enough destabilizing, then you can have both control to be safe and be loved. And then five, as I mentioned, five and six, the life is chaos and has no meaning. This one will either go to always be rejected, which is just another way to be like, see, there's no reason. Like everything's going to go wrong. No one's going to like me. The world is purposeless. It's just another way to reconfirm that life is chaos and has no meaning. And then six often happens when somebody seeks to try to control and almost, um, let's say the life is chaos and has no meaning person. This is a great example. They go into really deep, heavy drug addiction after high school and they become that addicted to AA or NA. They need to have that severe control so that their origin source belief doesn't constantly rule the roost. So it's like they have to deviate from or default from one extreme to the other to be able to function. So just remember that whatever your source belief pattern is, and if you're if you've ever taken the school of sustainable self mastery, you know exactly what that pattern is for you, along with a variety of other patterns that help set both the nuance and context for the work that you're doing. But if you can kind of mentally now in that snapshot figure out what you think your pattern was that I just described, imagine every single time when we go through the how you're approaching the communication, ask yourself. Am I like, if mine is, I will always be abandoned. I have to hold it all together. Am I looking at this communication with this person in a way that I'm almost like a child feeling like if I say this, this person's going to leave me because if I have that pattern, chances are before I do work like this, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Every time I go to say something that's really important to me, it's like, Oh, well, you're not trustworthy. You're not going to do right by this information. Then when I tell you, you're going to leave me, which is not rational or objective in most cases, right? It's just our childhood fear. So one of the questions that you can ask yourself when you run through that communication list, am I thinking of this in my childhood lens rather than my empowered adult lens? Am I not saying the thing because I'm trying to hold it all together and not rock the boat? So think about what your pattern is and make sure that you're checking through that list and seeing how you might be using that pattern to alter how you're seeing the situation and the perceived choices that you have. Shan says, could one be a combination of a couple of those? No, those are the only patterns. And there are a variety of ways to test and see which ones are which, but those are the only patterns that ever go with each other. 
And there's a reason for that. So the rejected always be rejected and then the hold it all together. Those never go together because the rejected person doesn't actually believe in themselves. So they would never tag themselves in to step in and take on lots of work from people because their biggest operating belief is that anything they do, they do wrong. So they don't actually press into taking on extra work or trying to be the peacekeeper because they don't believe in themselves. So if you find that you're really drawn to that, hold it all together, it's most definitely the I'll always be abandoned in the position one. And that's the one that people struggle with the most. But as you dig deeper into the coursework, you'll understand pretty definitively why the rejected person would never hold it all together. Um, and remember, abandoned, always be abandoned. It doesn't mean that your parents have to actually leave. A lot of people that have that message have parents that were married, still married, and were in the home the whole time. So it doesn't take much for a child to feel like they've been like ditched or ignored, even if the parents are completely in the house. So here's some things to just watch out for in general. Um, if you are drawn to social justice, social injustice, especially as it relates to events on the world media stage, and you also have the I'll always be rejected message. We dig into this, obviously, in the big course. We call it the Justice League pattern, where you essentially become, as a child, addicted to the experience of constantly feeling powerless to injustice that's being done to you. And when you go into your adulthood, you get addicted to experience the injustice of other groups of people, things on the news, documentaries, right? But the crux here is that your brain is addicted to experiencing the injustice without being able to do anything about it, right? Because as a child, you're helpless. You don't have power over your parents. You usually can't change your cards. When you're an adult, you can, but you've likely created a life in which you cannot, you don't believe that you can actually change what's being done which is why you'll likely be drawn to this social injustice that's happening around you that you really can't affect much change on. So the ultimate medicine for that is going to force yourself to do something productive. Like, okay, engaging in the social media battle right now is not productive, but I'm going to go out on the street. I'm going to have a deep conversation with a homeless person and give them a hundred bucks of my hard-earned money. That's the perfect medicine for your brain because when you can actually do something that's productive, your brain will start to quiet down. Um, if you perceive yourself to be a reactive or a sensitive person, right? And I see this all the time. We're like, I'm just really, I'm just really sensitive. Okay. That might be what your brain is telling you, but likely what you've developed is essentially a, a mechanism by which if you react or you start like shaking or crying, that person will will stop engaging in the conversation with you or go easier on you or back, you know, kind of um, reverse their position so that you can get your way. Just being a sensitive person and using that as an excuse to why you don't want to have certain types of communication or why you shut certain types of communication down with crying, it's not going to be a productive way to live your life. So be honest with yourself and really evaluate, am I like, am I telling myself I'm a sensitive person? Because in reality, I, I feel for a lot of people and I tend to get really emotional about things very quickly. And is that true or is that in one part true, but it's also part of my protective reflex so that I can, I can either distract myself from my own life 
in which case the people that perceive themselves to be like highly sensitive people or empaths, usually you get yourself all hooked into other people's drama and chaos because you don't want to focus on your own life. Sorry to say it, but that's hap- that's often what happens. Or if you're that reactive, sensitive person, you're like, I'm just a crier. Be honest with yourself. Do you use that as a way to just shut down a conversation and get your way? Because that reflex is usually developed in childhood. And usually if you're a crier now, you were probably a crier then. And that was probably your childhood reflex to get dad to soften up or to get dad to give you a hug or to get mom to stop yelling at you or to make your sister stop teasing you, right? To make your boyfriend all of a sudden be nice and be like, okay, 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 I'll stay. I won't go out with the boys, right? So be honest with yourself. That goes back to that intention. And remember that just because you've always been a certain way, that doesn't mean that you it's the best way for you to be or the most productive way for you to be. It doesn't mean that you're going to be that way forever. If you desired to shift out of that to create more productive relationships, you absolutely can. Um, Here's another one that certainly has been coming up a lot. I tend to get a lot of nurses in break. Let's say in any given semester, probably have like 30 to 40 nurses or nurse practitioners. Um, There are certain jobs in which the way the job functions, the job role or the hierarchy or the, the like ethical parameters that you're dealing with restrict what you can and can't do in the communication and kind of who you have to put up with and who you don't have to put up with. So being mindful about what that container is and what is worthy of getting frustrated over versus what is just a big old waste of your time is going to be critical. And I can go into that more when I answer one of the questions that has to do with that particular topic. Okay. So here's just some loving reminders just to wrap up the teaching portion because I know I've been going for a while and then we'll jump into the questions. Um, you cannot control other people's reactions. It's just not possible. So your brain might want to, it might feel safer to you. Your brain might actually try to run you through all the ways that person might react, but you aren't God and you can't control somebody else's reaction. So even just in the way certain people wrote some questions, it was like, this is the answer to that. You can't control how somebody is going to react to something. But what you can control is how you react to their reaction, right? So, you can control your emotional responses, but you can't ever control another person. Two, um, trying to avoid confrontation often leads to sneaky, passive-aggressive, long-term problems. This is a huge one to remember because it, it's something that got triggered for me right when I saw the um, communication without the fight. I would say more long-term problems are created by not having the tough conversation than having tough conversations. So just because you don't like confrontation or you're worried that by saying the thing, now that person can reject you or push you away, it doesn't mean that that's the right decision, right? Often avoiding that conversation, it basically creates this space by which you're both, let's say it's in an intimate relationship setting, nobody really has the full truth to interact with. You're kind of living a lie until you get that information out there. So Remember that keeping that quiet and avoiding the confrontation is just going to create a deeper rift in the long run. Um, Not having expectations is a false light concept, meaning it is a bullshit concept. It's probably been told to you by somebody that also believes in polyamory. 
Um, expectations are a great thing. Having unrealistic expectations, that's bad. Not communicating your expectations, that's bad. But expectations are critical. If you do not have expectations, it's the perfect recipe for frustration, anger, and burnout. It is not only important to have realistic and measurable, right? Both things, realistic expectations and measurable expectations. It's critical to make the person that you're interacting with know what those are. Because you can't just have an expectation that's unspoken and not communicated and expect that person to like magically figure it out, right? This is part of what creating a container is all about. You've got to show them where the edges are. So keep that in mind. And you're like, oh, I just no expectations, right? Like live and let live, let people be who they are. These are all false light concepts that are, are completely detrimental to your well-being. They will not cultivate a, a pure evolving relationship. They will constantly hold you in a place of stagnation and they're just, they're just false concepts. Number four, most people just want to feel acknowledged. That's going to be true through and through. When you can use break tools to understand their deep patterns and meet them in that intentional in-between space, magic happens. It's relatively easy to get someone to break out of their cycle if you learn how to specifically disrupt it. So the best way to think of this is whatever source belief I have, my source belief pattern, let's say that that makes me see the world through blue glasses, right? Every time I look at anything, I've got blue glasses on. And whatever your source belief pattern is makes you have red glasses, Every single time you and I, you know, go out to lunch or we go for a hike, I'm going to say that was blue and you're going to say that was red. When the truth is it's purple, right? We both have to learn to see what the other person sees and get to that in-between space. Where where do both of our perspectives meet in that in-between and how can we communicate to them from this in-between space? Also, once you take break and you understand how to, with a very educated guess, understand what people's patterns are, you can make your pattern disruptions very specific to theirs. Okay, number five, social media is a communication nightmare. I repeat, if I had a, a bullhorn, I would just yell this out on the street right now. Although I'm in Idaho and people would be like, fuck yeah, I know. Um, between triggers, safe spaces, and cancel culture, which is my least favorite thing in the whole world, you're better off staying out of intense interactions on social media if you don't have a thick skin. And this is not a diss. It just, people are not conscious right now. They are emotionally reactive. They are confused. They're getting pulled into mob mentality. And it's a perfect storm event if you don't have a thick skin and you haven't really done work on how to stay rock solid. So just know when you go into something, if it's really important and meaningful to you, you have to remember to use your tools when you get attacked because you can't take things personally on that platform. It's a goddamn nightmare. Okay. Um, Brittany says, okay, now I'm curious about the polyamory question and your thoughts on how your work ties into a desire for that type of relationship. So I have had many polyamorous couples come into this course. Um, I've had a lot of people come into this course uh, to deal with trauma from being pulled into polyamory. I have a lot of teaching that I do on polyamory and how detrimental 
it is from a emotional patterning standpoint and how it was created as a false light concept specifically to never require people to be all in and make themselves all the way vulnerable. I know that for some people that might be something that they're into. I take a pretty hard line stance on it. Now that doesn't mean that I can't have students that have that lifestyle because I do. I've had even like married polyamorous couples take break, graduate break. And, you know, at the end of the day, I want people to do what they want to do, but I will certainly never hold back in teaching the neuroscience behind why people are drawn to that and the damage that it can continue to do once you get pulled into a lifestyle like that. Quite often, it completely tears open a pre-existing wound. And I've seen people leave more often than not with um, essentially PTSD, frankly. Um, But I do go into that in the full course. Okay. Um, let's get to some of the questions. Hang on one second. Time check. Got it. Okay. So we're going to start with Amanda's question. Some people had a lot of questions and I feel like probably at this point from my teaching, some of these are probably already answered. How can I effectively relay my feelings without triggering the other person? Again, that kind of goes back to, you can't control their responses. But if you understand who they are, what drives them and make an educated guess about, you know, what you guys are in tandem trying to achieve with the communication, you can do your best to use peer language, to not ambush them with your communication, to not use a condescending voice tone. So I would say the things that you're talking about are more pivots or adjustments that you can make in how you come across rather than controlling how the person's going to respond because we can't control how they're going to respond. Um, What can I do when I feel like someone is committed to misunderstanding me? So number one, this, this does happen, right? Kind of like what I've said, where if you're in a pattern with somebody, even if you do something different or change something there, they very well could hear the thing that you didn't actually say or perceive something in the old way that you used to say it. Um, if this is the case, especially if this is like an uh, intimate partner or, you know, mom, dad, sister, etc. What I would do is at the point where you can, they've given you reflective feedback that they're hearing something that you're not saying. You have to be committed to responding in the way that I'm going to describe to you right now without being reactive, right? You can't get pissed off or frustrated that they're misunderstanding you. You also have to be okay with saying your piece without them validating that you're right or that they hear you, right? You, as long as you get your point across, whether they're going to acknowledge that or not, doesn't really matter. So let's say you've just said a bunch of things and then your sister or whatever says, you always do this. You always try to control everything, right? They give some sort of blanket response that takes everything you just said out of context. This is the point where you say, listen, I know that in a lot of our conversations, this tends to happen. Instead of listening to the details or the words that I'm trying to communicate to you, you just see it from either a childhood perspective where you think I'm always trying to control people, right? So acknowledge what they've just said and said, and reiterate the details or the points. I'm simply talking about this, this, and this. If you want to choose to keep seeing it in that light, that's on you, but that's not what I'm saying. At that point, 
you totally have the free pass to walk away from the communication, right? If your goal was, I just want them to hear me. Great. If your goal was to get them to validate you, you were already going into it with a faulty intention, right? So often it's just stop. This is what you're saying. This is why I disagree. Let me give you one more chance to see the details that I'm laying out for you. And if you don't want to see that, then that's okay. You don't have to walk away and be like, you're cut out of my life or like, whatever, fuck you, right? Being able to be calm and just say, so that's where I'm at. If you want to talk about this, we can do that in a little bit. If not, that's okay. You know, we can just both feel different ways about this. It's often in our desire to get them to validate us or see our side or say that they see our side. That's where we run into problems. If we can get ourselves to a place where we, all we need is to say what needs to be said and then trust that people will do with that what they will. That's a much more productive space to be in. Um, how can I, sorry, you guys, I think most of you know that I'm five months pregnant as I sit for too long. It's like the baby starts getting, she gets antsy. She starts hurting in there. Oh, okay. Um, and yes, she's a, she, for those of you that don't know, Harley Rose. Okay. Um, okay. How can I effectively address my needs for love, fear, abandonment to somebody that reacts and withholds love? So this is part of what we do in the School of Sustainable Self-Mastery in Unit 3 when we go into individual relationships and their symbiotic dysfunctional patterns. So quite often, when you do have fear of abandonment, you are in a relationship with a person that withholds love because your brain is trying to recreate your childhood experiment. So let's use this example because I think this analogy will help put into perspective while also acknowledging that to teach you how to do this would take me weeks. <laughs> so when we talk about our source belief pattern, and let's say, obviously, yours here would be always be abandoned, right? If you were to put in place of always be abandoned, I'm only allowed to have red roses, right? You would look at a whole field of flowers with every different color and every different type of flower. And you would only walk through and pick the red roses because your brain believes I'm only allowed to have red roses. So when you get to the other side of the field, you're going to have all the evidence that you're only allowed to have red roses. But that doesn't mean that you didn't just walk through a field with every single type of flower and every color of flower. So sometimes you get to a point in unit three of the School of Sustainable Self-Mastery and you're looking at a bouquet of red roses and you're like, they withhold love. They punish me when I try to, you know, voice my needs, right? You're looking at this bouquet of red roses and they might actually be a red rose. You might have only gone out there and picked partners that actually feed your source belief pattern, right? You only, you might have subconsciously only picked people that are going to victimize you. But sometimes we don't actually have a bouquet of red roses. We've convinced ourselves that we have a bouquet of red roses. But sometimes we are treating the person in a way in this communication cycle where we're poking or prodding them so that we make them act like a red rose when they might actually have a different way of reacting if we change our part of the cycle, which is one of the things that we teach in the School of Sustainable Self-Mastery. So your job at, at some point, if you were to dig into this, would be to do the work to acknowledge, is this just a red rose, in which case I need to address how I'm going out in the world and choosing partners? Or can I shift my communication pattern, disrupt the cycle, and then 
give them a chance to respond to me differently in a way where they're no longer withholding love. So this is one of the things that we really focus on in the course is teaching you how to specifically disrupt that cycle so that it gives them a chance to treat you differently than they've ever treated you. Um, how can I successfully get my partner and I out of our symbiotic dysfunction successfully when she is addicted to giving, receiving red ice cream cones without getting to my breaking point? So that question matched with the withholding love question. It sounds like you're probably dealing with a red rose in this analogy. Um, that's going to be a question that I would pass off to your facilitator because they would know more about your case history than I would. But for example, sometimes the problem is that you think you're giving them a, red, a green ice cream cone, but really the green ice cream cone that you're trying to give them is really just a disguised red, which can happen sometimes, or sometimes it's a matter of the consistency, or sometimes it's a matter of not having real ex realistic expectations for what your partner is capable of, of doing to change, right? So that would kind of be the like, a red rose might just be a red rose. So with your facilitator, because it sounds like you're actually in the course, what I would say is to have them double check. And I know that we haven't gotten to red and green ice cream cones yet in um, my group. I think those start this week for the last semester. This is where you want to make sure that you're very clear about your green ice cream cones, because sometimes we trick ourselves into believing that something is a disrupt when it's really just an interrupt. <laughs> okay. Um, Jennifer, expectations. How do I find my partner's needs while still expressing mine? So your partner's needs and yours have nothing to do with each other, right? They need to exist in two separate bubbles. Now, if you were to draw those two things out in two separate bubbles and you were to see where potentially one person's needs actually needs and expectations bump up against somebody else's needs and expectations. That's where you have to have a conversation about how to, how to have little give and take, how to compromise. Right. But what I would say is the most important thing is to draw two separate bubbles, put all of your partner's expectations and making sure that they're really truly your partner's expectations rather than your assumptions about their expectations. Right. This should be a group exercise and then all of your expectations, and then figure out which ones can coexist, which ones actually mutually exist, and then which ones need some sort of communication about compromise. That would be my suggestion. Um, Jessica, lately on social media, I find myself not as reactive and growing in my responses to people. Immersion therapy has given me great tact. However, I'm constantly holding back a part of me that wants to fight, scream, and accused of injustices. I see bullying, name calling, hating, and cruelty. I don't act on 90% of what my brain screams for me to do. How do I quiet the screaming? I'm still easily offended and highly sensitive, even though I've learned to curb my reactionary side and think past it. That anger though. So a couple things here. Number one, the time that we're in right now, like just 2020 as a general rule, um, this is going to push everyone's buttons. So like, even if you're not naturally inclined toward this, you're probably still like frequently enraged by no matter what side of the issue you're on, you're probably still frustrated and more emotionally reactive than usual. So just keep that into context and perspective. If you're naturally like this, we're just kind of in like a hotbed for this right now. So the fact that you're not acting on it right now is a great first step. 
One of the things that I would suggest is when you're in a situation where you're still easily offended and you're sensitive and your brain's running you through all the like, I want to say this to them and I can't believe they would do that. Ask yourself if you're, I can't tell if you're actually in break or not, but the concept of Eli, if you're familiar with that, the emotion, logic, intuition, run yourself through Eli questions. Is this productive right now? Is this person upsetting me because I'm taking it personally? Do I even know this person is letting my brain focus on these things right now and projecting this fight in my head productive to what I'm doing right now? Is it robbing somebody of energy and time that's right in front of me? Because often when we do these things, it's like, actually, this is taking away from my kids or actually this is taking away from my husband or my partner or my job concentration, right? So once you kind of run yourself through that list and you Eli, usually it will bring the emotional response down quite a bit so that you can actually be like, okay, I can walk away from this one. This one's not personal. It's just aggravating. I'm going to go on with my day. So that is, oh, Jessica, duh. And Eli is your friend. Yes. So you know where I'm going with this, especially with you, because you have gone from having one group of friends coming through your belief system. And then to the other side, you've got like all the friends that are going to disagree with you. So it's going to be even more, um, triggering, so to speak. So I think for you, it's just going to be running through Eli. Is this productive? Is this taking time away from Brooke right now? Is this taking time away from what I could be focusing on? Is like really the productivity thing is going to be the cure. All right, Stephanie, how to handle colleagues who do not communicate effectively and waste your time while at work, usually rambling aimlessly about a patient, I'm a nurse, or bluntly stating a problem, but not elaborating how that affects me or what I need to do to fix that problem. So this is something that I've run into um, quite a bit with nurses. Sorry. Sorry. Whew, guys, pregnancy is the whole other ballgame right now. Um, run into this a lot with nurses. And without extra context, I'm going to just give some general examples. So sometimes, and it sounds like you're it's hard to tell if your issue is with doctors and you're a nurse or with other nurses and you're a nurse. Um, it's probably a combination. So for example, this other client that I had, a lot of the communication issues were around not feeling like the patients themselves would had like any sort of care or, or were paying any attention to their own care or what was best for their medical health needs or just, taking any responsibility. And when we dug into it, what really came out is that it's a low income clinic and that the doctors there really have created this environment by which like the patients are just there to like get their meds or just kind of like listen and just do whatever they're told rather than take any sort of care or pride in their own care and ask questions. So she would constantly get upset or frustrated that they weren't taking pride, but she couldn't really do anything because she was a nurse, but the doctors weren't doing it. So it was just, you can see this whole web of frustration. There are certain times where you've got to step outside and say, okay, number one, does my job role or the parameters of what's socially acceptable in my job role innately prohibit me from being able to change this? Because if I can't really change it, and it's actually part of the architecture of the hierarchy at my job, allowing myself to be frustrated or pissed off all the time is a waste of everyone's energy because the job architecture is literally set up this way. So sometimes if 
it's the doctor and you're not allowed to say anything to the doctor. Like, could you get on with it? Like, can you get to the fucking point? Or conversely, what does this have to do with me? If it's not appropriate to behave that way with the doctor, you can actually shift to questions if it's appropriate within the job architecture. For example, um, kindly stopping somebody and saying, um, I have another patient just around the corner. Is there any way that you could give me kind of the top line summary so that I can do my best with this? So what's going to be important here when you ask somebody kindly to summarize or like hit the high points is being very mindful of your voice tone so that you're not like, could you fucking get on with it already? Um, there's a way to encourage them to decrease the amount of time and get to the point without being an asshole. If it's appropriate within the job architecture hierarchy. Um, it's also okay to kindly interrupt someone and say, so what aspects of this deal directly with me or how can I be of most assistance, right? Even though it's a disrupt and in your head, you're going to be like, this person's so annoying. The last thing you want to do is be nice. When you can be nice and kind of redirect them. So the intention that you're trying to get to, they'll often just do it naturally. But if you let yourself get reactive and do what you've always done, they're going to keep doing what they always do. So you need to disrupt the cycle lovingly and without being pretentious or condescending, get them to change course. For example, one of the easiest ways to get an attacker to stop attacking you, right? If they're like in their emotional response and they're coming after you to like rape you or assault you, if you get in their face and you're like, what color is the sky? Their brain will hear that information and their brain will shift to a different part of their brain that is not in charge of emotional responses. And they'll be like, blue. they'll be thinking blue, even though they want to be thinking about attacking you. And it usually gives you a second to run away or do something different because it will actually stop their emotional response system. So if you can get them to shift out of their natural state by redirecting them kindly somewhere else, they'll usually just change without even really acknowledging it. They won't even know why they just changed. Okay, Arman, how can I improve my assertion and listening skills so the other person feels understood or heard, but also realizes that understanding does not equal agreement? So it's definitely going to be a language game. So making sure that somebody feels understood, that falls under the category of controlling how they feel or respond, which we can't do, right? If somebody wants to feel misunderstood, even if you do everything to make them feel understood, they're still going to feel misunderstood, right? If somebody wants to feel like they're always going to be rejected, you could do everything in the world to include them. And they're still going to be like, yeah, but they didn't really mean it. Or they were just faking it, right? They're going to find a way to leave that conversation feeling validated. And however they went into it feeling because they're looking at it from that childhood perspective. So Let's take that one off the table because we can't make sure that they feel understood. What we can do is reflect without. So this is where we have to draw the line between like what I teach versus like kind of that false, like conscious communication where it's like, I'm hearing you say, and that makes me feel fuck that. <laughs> We're just going to go ahead and say that that is in most cases, not only is that not pro productive because it doesn't actually help people get on the same page and it doesn't actually help people navigate through conflict. If anything, it just kind of keeps people on two sides of the fence. They're like, I hear you. I see you. I hear you. 
not productive, um, very disabling. And often, like I said, it doesn't ever lead to reconciling and landing in a new co-created space. It's just kind of like, okay, so we're just going to agree to lovingly be on this other side of the fence. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've actually had a lot of people come into the course that are like busy, save me from my bullshit conscious communicating patterns because after a while they will create an entire false light community around you if you're not careful. So without being like, I hear what you're saying and this is how I feel. There's a way to reflect back. Let's say somebody's talking to you about something, pick two or three things to reflect back to them in a summarized statement where they hear that you are actually listening to them. Right? So instead of saying like, I'm hearing you say, or I think that you said respond back with, So I love where you're going with this. You want this and this and this. These are the things that I feel like I can contribute to that, right? Or you said this and this and this. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly so that I can X, Y, Z with whatever the information that they're giving. So if you treat it like, here's the football you just passed me. I just want to make sure we're both looking at the same football. Cause I want to make sure that this is the football so that I can grab it and run to the end zone rather than like my football's over here and your football's over there and they're never going to be the same football, but that's okay. Cause we're conscious. That's very different than trying to figure out how to pass the football, describe the football and make sure that you're both getting it to the end zone. So I would pick two to five things that you can pick out from what they just described Talk about those things in the context of how you're going to interact with that football or ask, remind them. So you, you said this, this, and this, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding these points correctly so that I can grab this football and run to the end zone. That usually will help quite a bit. But again, you can't make sure that they feel misunderstood because you could a million times be like, this is the football. We're talking about the same football. Okay. I'm going to run to the end zone. You're going to run to the end zone. They're like, Oh my God, you totally misunderstood me. If somebody's committed to feeling that way, they're going to feel that way, no matter what you do. Tell them to take breaks. Okay. Um, and Adrian, how do I communicate with an angry child without becoming enraged myself? Whew. Well, there's a few things here. So <clears throat> Eli, 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 it's going to be frustrating because when you have an angry child, especially, and obviously I, I know your kids too, they express in a really intense way that doesn't feel like it's grounded in the practical reality that you and I are both seeing with our eyeballs. So it's going to feel out of control and enraging in those moments. You have to kind of adjust to what that child's reality is. So you have to be like, okay, are we perceiving the same reality? In most of these cases, it's going to be no, particularly in your situation. You know, do I have to factor in their history? Do I have to factor in like, have they made any progress? Because even if they've made progress and they're still angry, but maybe they're they're not as angry now as they were a year ago, I can remind myself of that progress as a way to drop that anger level down. When we think about dealing with an angry child and then that making us enraged, we feel enraged because we feel like we have no control over it, right? It brings us back to that powerless nature. And then it, it brings you back naturally to Am I doing something wrong? Could I be doing something better? And in certain cases, the answer is no. It's a it's a slow, consistent process of of re-nurturing them out of this anger pattern. And some kids that want to be angry, like they're just going to be angry and you can't take it personally and you can't make it about you being a bad mom or doing something wrong. 
So I would say to really rest on the incremental moments of progress that you've made and rely on that so that you can say like, okay, it's not like it's not ever changing. It's, it's changing. It just might not be gone. Right. So I think for those things, that's what you personally have to focus on and just really shift back and try to see it through their perspective because those boys are really special and unique and the way that they're perceiving a situation is probably not the way you are. And you've made a lot of progress. So I think you just have to remember the progress part. Okay. Um, I think, okay. So that was the end of those questions. Let me go back to this question that somebody typed in. Um, did you get any questions about finances in an unmarried partnership? And the answer was no, but we're going to go through this now. We've been together 10 years how does that work successfully when we have a family? What is the worth of motherhood sweat equity and contributing to the family versus an actual monetary value? My partner is open to sharing things half, but I would, I would have to buy half the house, et cetera, even though I pay rent, take care of some of the bills and do most of the shopping for child activities and needs. I do not want to go tit for tat and split like a roommate. This has been an issue. So before I keep going, so this container in general, um, it's more important, I think, to address the trust issues that are making you guys set up the container this way. So obviously there's deep-seated trust issues. There's source belief issues. Setting up the container this way when you have children and you have a family, it's naturally going to turn into the tit for tat. It's going to feel like you're splitting a check with a roommate and it's going to make it really hard for you to really be vulnerable and trusting in the intimate setting. So um, she says, I want the resentment gone so we can be a power couple again. I would say the big issue is to, instead of trying to solve the finance issues, really dig deep on where the trust issue is coming from and, you know, set some reasonable expectations of your partner. Like, hey, I know that you feel this way about it, as a family, I don't, that's not okay with me, right? You've got to be, you've got to put yourself out there and, you know, kind of lovingly demand what you need from the situation. Cause if it's not working and it's leading toward resentment for you, you've got to express that to your partner and get to the bottom of the trust issues so that you guys can actually fix that and join financial resources rather than try to just talk about the financial resources. Cause one is a symptom of the other. You need to address the underlying issue and be unafraid to say the truth, right? Because you've got to put that whole truth out there so that that person knows that like, this isn't something that I can just keep skating by with. I have to fix this. We've we got to do something. So I would say to deal with the root cause rather than just have the financial conversation and then set a very clear boundary expectation for how you want that to be shifted and focus on on that and whatever is required for that and you know let them know that it, it does lead to resentment and if that's not how they want you to feel about them which it probably isn't then the issue needs to be addressed and as with anything this can start with incremental commitments right let's say you guys both decide like while we sort through this issue let's both put x amount of dollars in this account and let's like try this for a certain period of time in this setting right the answer isn't usually, oh, hi, Gav. I love you, buddy. You and I have a phone date this week, buddy. Um, so going back to my train of thought for a second, incremental commitments, right? 
it's often not the best thing to just be like, ultimatum, we're joining finances and treating this, you know, not like a roommate partnership, splitting all the bills or nothing, or I'm out, right? We're not talking about ultimatums here, but we can suggest while we're dealing with the the deep seated trust issues and addressing what the bigger reason is why there's the lack of wanting to fully commit and join those things. What can you create on the side? So it's like this test container, like let's create this smaller container. Let's do this thing for a set period of time so that we can build trust in this way and then figure out how to take the next step. That's what I would suggest. Okay. I think that's all the questions we've been on for an hour and a half, which is totally typical in my world. Usually I'm like, oh, we'll be like 45 minutes and then we're here for an hour and a half. That's just how it works. Um, does anyone else have any other questions for me before we get going? Okay. So as most of you know, I'm sure the fall semester break starts on, well, enrollment opens on Wednesday. It doesn't start until mid-August. So enrollment opens on Wednesday. We have 30% off going for the first 24 hours only, and the code is come out better 30. So if that's something that you're wanting to do that first 24 hour period, so the 15th and the 16th, that's going to be the only time to use this 30% off code. Um, we also have coming up our come out better challenge, which is going to be starting on July 21st. It's a free nine day challenge. Um, certainly something that I would suggest bringing your partners in on your friends, your family, coworkers, et cetera. It's a great opportunity to help other people level up with you because when your friends level up and your coworkers level up, it makes everything a lot easier because it you're everyone's meeting you on the same level that you're trying to navigate to. So um, come out better 30 is what you can use if you're signing up for the course on Wednesday. If you have any questions in the meantime, you can always set up a discovery call on the website that will end up being usually with either Joe, Adrian, or myself. It really just depends on the time that you select. And um, yeah, lots of good stuff coming up. I hope this was helpful. I'll be putting this replay link in the forum for emotional repatterning so that anyone can check it out. Um, okay. That's all you guys. Lots of love. Hoping to work with lots of you in the fall semester and to hang with you guys doing the Come Out Better Challenge. All right. Bye. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.